This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. You asked, we answered. Pre-orders are open for our new t-shirt, Give Us the B of the D, specially designed by friend of the show, Sandra Pelock. Pre-orders are very important. Once we sell out of these, they are gone forever. It is also the best way to take advantage of our inclusive sizing. So head over to the ERM store at myfavoritemurder.com to get your shirt today. That's myfavoritemurder.com slash ERM hyphen store to order your Give Us the B of the D t-shirt today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're here talking about film with you once again. How's it going, Danielle? It's going great. It's it's hot month and I'm hot. I'm hot, hot, hot. Like sweating hot. Like smelling mm-hmm. bad hot. But I also realized today I was walking around and I'm like, why do I, who do I remind myself of? And um, I'm kind of been dressing like Henry Rollins. Like on stage <laughs> Henry Rollins. Like I'm just wearing a pair of black sweat shorts and nothing else. I put on a shirt for you guys. But I've just been walking around in black sweatshorts. Like, who do I remind myself of? Oh, yeah, Henry Rollins, which hit me as I watched my film because he's in it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's who I'm cosplaying as in my house. Like, when he's in the Rollins band in the Liar video, when he's just wearing those shorts with no shirt on, no shoes, no socks. Is that what you're talking about? 100%. Titties out, 100%. (laughs) Can I just say, maybe as a preview to the... You know something that will happen in the in the episode later. Uh, this was truly the first time that I feel like I saw Henry Rollins in clothes. I'm just saying, <laughs> it's real. It's real. I was fucking shocked. Yeah, um, he's almost in. He, like, what a great way to go in disguise is just to put on clothes. Oh, definitely. I was like double-breasted blazer. <laughs> I. This is so weird. Why is he wearing clothes? Um, How are you this week? Uh, I'm good, actually. I'm coasting off of this email that we got in our inbox recently. Oh, yeah. Like we say, we love getting emails. If you want to write one, you can always do it at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. If you write in, just know that we might read them either on a main feed or a bonus episode. And if you don't want us to read it, you'll have to just tell us not, not to read it. But, um, just know that if you email us, we're going to probably read it, okay? If it's funny and good and whatever. Also, if you put pronouns in there, that would be very helpful. But so having said that, this email was so wonderful that I was like, it needs to be on a main feed app. Like I can't, we can't just leave it to a bonus, even though bonuses are on main feed now. So it doesn't even really matter. But do you know what I mean? Like I, I was like, mean. this needs to be kind of uh, uh, preserved for posterity in a main feed app. Yes. And it just is like, you know, if you're having a bad day, I feel like this is a kind of email that you pull out 
and just remember that life is nice and people are nice, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So this is an email from T. She goes by she, her pronouns. And here it goes. Hi, Danielle and Millie. Zillennial fan here, established 1996, from the Southeast, writing in to say your podcast is like cracking open a never-ending geode of culture crystals. Millie, you fuck my shit up on the rig. You are fucking hilarious. Maybe it's something to do with sharing the timing of Southern humor, but every episode you drop gems that I have to slam the pause button on because I am sputtering and wheezing like a buffoon. You convey complex intellectual arguments using the same down-home verbiage as a NASCAR fan. You are a fucking trip and the only Aries I would ever stab myself in the leg for. Danielle, I wish I words better just so I could speak this truth over you. You are a heart and soul person. Your realness and rawness is my lifeblood. You reveal the vulnerability that lives in anger somehow. You are one of nature's unknowable conflicts. You should be studied. It would be an honor to be violently chastised by you in the parking lot of a Home Depot. I hope we never meet because I have an extremely embarrassing crush on you. Also, many of the things you have a stated hatred of apply to me directly. Your podcast is my refuge. Never doubt the magical mad genius that both of you inexplicably possess. All my love, T. Oh, Come tea. on. T, I think you wordsed just fine and... <laughs> Impeccably, actually. Like, that is one of the nicest and most thoughtful emails we've ever received. Thank you. Yeah, dude. I, this one is just so heartwarming. I mean, I can't get over the fact that T has an extremely embarrassing crush on you. That is such a fun compliment. Um, Everyone who's ever had a crush on me is embarrassed. So join the fucking queue. Listen. Get in line. I love an embarrassing crush. Every crush I have is embarrassing. I'm like, oh, why do I feel this way? I hate it. All crushes are embarrassing. We just all have to, you know, move out of that space and just be in the moment. Be in the embarrassing moment of liking somebody earnestly and not ironically. Right? Yeah. I I would rather that than the kind of ironic, detached, bullshitty way people tend to talk about each other. Like, I am very, very grateful to And thank you for having a crush on me. And don't be embarrassed by it at all, because I'm fucking cool. Having been violently (laughs) chastised by you, Danielle, in the parking lot of a Home Depot, I have to say, it's great. (laughs) We did go to Home Depot together once. Remember when we lived in L.A. and we had to drive? What, What Was it a Home Depot that was like in... It's not the one on Sunset. It's this no. other one out of, outside of valley, town. Right? Yes, I think we did. You didn't actually violently chastise me, but I feel like <laughs> you were you were stressed out. I am always stressed out at Home Depot. If somebody <laughs> once sent me a, a message on Instagram that was like, "Hey, I think I just saw you at a Lowe's," and I was like, "I'm sorry." Like they didn't talk to me or anything. I was just like, "I know I was in a bad mood because I'm always in a bad mood if I'm in a home improvement store." That is actually probably true, like 99% of the time, because it's not the kind of place where you would just go and browse, right? No. It's like 
eyes on the prize type of place. And most people are there because they have to improve something in their house, which means that they're probably pissed off or stressed out or something's happening. So yeah, you're probably right. Everybody in a Home Depot, there's no peace in there. (laughs) Even if you're just buying batteries, you're fucking stressed because where are the batteries? Where are they? I'll tell you, yeah. in most of these home improvement stores, now that I, now that I go on a semi-regular basis, basis, they're usually in the front and then they have a big um, end cap with all yeah. the batteries because people steal them, I guess. So, But yeah, you're always stressed in a Home Depot. But I just, I will violently chastise you. I will lightly chastise you, T. Um, I hope we get to meet one day, um, despite the fact that many of the things that I have said I hate to apply directly to you. I still think you are a magical and wonderful being. And if you could write an email like this, where you clearly are so in tune with how great Millie is, that I'm down. Let's meet. Let's hang out. I'm glad that I can convey com- complex intellectual arguments like a NASCAR fan. That actually is a very big compliment for me. I think that's a huge compliment, honestly. <laughs> like, truly. Did truly. I tell you... I'm going to ask you this question. I'm, I already know the answer to it. Have you ever been to a NASCAR race? No. Okay. <laughs> Duh. And um, I haven't seen Talladega Nights, and I have avoided that whole culture for most of my life so far. So I have been to one, a, only a one, at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. Long story short, a friend of mine is works for a, a NASCAR team, like a marketing yes. person, and she was like, do you want to come see an NASCAR race? I was like, I mean, I don't even know what happens there besides just people spinning around a lot, but I'll go because I, like I said, I'll do anything once. I love experience, Absolutely. right? And there, so did I tell this story on this? No, I haven't told the story. I don't think. Um, if you if you've heard me tell this story, I apologize. But um, so the, so I went there and it was this kind of like all day event type of thing, and it was like you know obviously like. I would say 90% male (laughs) and not a lot of women, at least in the pit area. Like maybe the fans is one thing, but like the area that I was in, which is down near where the cars are or whatever, it was pretty much all men and then like a couple of ladies, right? So part of what I was down there for is I was sitting with the team and they're like little bleacher area. So you got like right up close to see like how they were like, doing the taking the tires off and all that shit real fast and it was just sort of like fascinating because i was they just do it so fast that you're like how how do you do that how does that tire not like fall off i guess when the guy drives away at like 200 miles an hour but i guess they're professionals but there was this moment that is seared onto my brain even to this day where so one of the cars that was, you know, racing around slammed into a wall and crashed, basically. Nobody was hurt, but the car was, like, pretty much destroyed, right? Which was weird as shit to see, to see a car, like, get destroyed and the guy just pops out. It's like, what's up? Let's go. Let's go <laughs> eat, you know, like, or whatever he does. I don't know what he does when a car crashes. I guess he just leaves. Where's um, my other car? <laughs> he, gets into a, he gets into a Toyota Tercel and it's like, now it's a real race. Right. So basically, they tow his team, his pit crew, tows the car to their little area because each one of them has, like, a little area that has, like, a trailer where they, like, go in and use the bathroom and, like, change and shit. It's kind of like a, 
I don't know. It looks like Lollapalooza or something. Everyone's just kind of hanging out in front of trailers and shit. Oh, I've, so, I've seen Footloose, the remake. Of course, of course. I'm I aware of this area, this truck area. <laughs> the truck area, right? So they tow this junked up car to their area. And all of a sudden you see all these men like running, running. And I'm talking about like, not their team, like just random men who I guess were fans that somehow have like the fan experience to be down in the pit or whatever. And all of a sudden there's just like this giant circle that forms around this junked up car and everyone starts pulling their phone out. And the pit crew of this, you know, they start taking apart this junked up car because I guess they just remove all the parts from the car. It's obviously not drivable. So I guess they're just trying to disassemble it so they can like put it on a truck to take it home or whatever. And it was like watching, it was like a group of men with their phones out, hungrily watching other men removing car parts. It was pornographic is what I'm saying. Oh God! And it that was is so, such a cis-head experience. <laughs> I was like, "Are they gonna like whip their dicks out and start like doing the thing?" Like, I, it was like they were so excited to watch like other men removing like junked up car parts, like smashed fucking fenders and shit. And I just was like, "This is the most fascinating subculture I've ever <laughs> experienced in my entire life." I am getting a glimpse into what it means to be a fucking man right now, and it is weird as shit. <laughs> it is weird as shit. Testosterone's got y'all out here crazy. <laughs> Testosterone will fuck you the fuck up. Yeah. I, I, that is literally the only time I've ever been in NASCAR, and that was just, like like I said, it was, like, such a weird experience to have that I'm like, do I want to go back to another NASCAR? It could be fun. I guess people love it. People fucking love it. It's a huge sport. I and people are starting it in the Formula One, and they're always wanting to talk about the differences between the two. And I'm like, I the difference between the two is money. Like one is lo- like considered a low class sport, and the other one is considered a, a rich person sport. Right. But they're all just racing cars, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I know there's differences on the track and all kinds of shit. But I would go. I would actually go to a NASCAR event. I just I have never had the opportunity to go. And again, like there's something about the culture of NASCAR that has kept me at arm's length intentionally. Sure. I think they uh-huh. they actively like weird black ladies stay over there. But yeah. I have I think the only experience that I've had that even comes close to that is I've gone to a couple of rodeos. And yeah. rodeos are so much fun, but they are so intense in that way where like dudes will gather and you're like, what the fuck's going on? Whenever I see a ring of men, I'm like, something bad is happening. Yes. Yes. Something bad is happening. And it's usually not, but it's like if them just gawking at something. And but it's but that instinct is just so instilled in me that it's hard to get away from like, oh, they're just like admiring this horse or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but and that's this is ultimately this argument that I will have with any man who tries to like I don't know, confront me for liking astrology or something like, you know, some kind of like gendered like gotcha moment where they're like god all you women all you do is want to like hang out in Sephora and, you know, oh, talk about nail polish. I was like, "Bitch, I saw you and a bunch of your friends filming a horse." <laughs> Standing there. Just standing there. Horse wasn't even doing anything. Wasn't even doing anything cool. Wasn't pissing on anything. Everyone's weird. Everyone's embarrassing. 
Absolutely. As, uh, as we've just pointed out in reference to T's email to us. Yes. And I just, again, this is just such a nice, and it's nice because it also, this email is nice because it also conveys how you're interacting with the podcast, which I always love to hear about people, you know, laughing or, you know, zeroing in on one or two things. I just love that. I love hearing how you're interacting with it and that we connect with people is all we ever want to do. So I just really, really appreciated this email. It made me so happy for days after I read it. We should put it right in front of our um, our podcast areas before we look up reviews to post for uh, Wednesdays. Just like read this one first and then go read yeah. the reviews and be like, oh, it's exactly. OK, I've got I've got this one. We can sandwich it in between. Yeah, this this email is like our Nicole Kidman. We come to this place for magic speech before every, <laughs> <laughs> every, every podcast we do. I read somebody posted something on Instagram where they said that uh, in their viewing of Barbie, some guy got up and put his hat over his heart. And as Nicole Kidman was talking, he recited the whole speech with her. Theater like erupted in in applause. I'm like that is absolutely wonderful. That's how you do life. Like the 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 differences. Even this summer alone, I know they've been divorced for a very long time, but you've got Tom Cruise and Christopher Nolan out here battling for fucking IMAX theaters. Yeah. To kind of prove who's got the bigger movie and who can get more asses in seats. Meanwhile, Nicole Kidman is like, let me just put on my silver suit and sit down in a movie backlit. And just tell you how great it is. That's how you win at life. That's how you win your divorce. That's how you win. She just has a peace and a calm about her that's just like, let me just act. That's what I do, man. Let me just act like I sit in theaters with regular people. Let me act like I don't have 17 mansions, all of them with private theaters, where I can watch whatever I want whenever I want. Where I can call someone directly and be like, I want to watch all that jazz next to Bob (laughs) Fosse's Bones. (laughs) Let's pretend you can't do that. Prop Bob Fosse's bones up next to me in a seat in my private theater. Because we know that's how Nicole Kidman is rolling. But I love that she can pretend to sit with the rest of us in a silver yeah. suit and just get our asses back to the movies. I she, love it. Yeah, she even pretended to buy a Coke. I and know! Have it. I was like, she ain't drinking that. That's, that Coke is flat. Some, that- some PA went and tried to get her this Coke to be like, Nicole, you're going to have to sit here with this Coke because you got to actually make it look like you're enjoying a movie in a movie theater. She's like, I don't I don't drink that. That machine, that Coke tastes like 17 different sodas because that's how they do soda now. They're like, do it yourself. And you're like, I want a regular Diet Coke. And it comes out tasting like a fucking Fanta because that's how they do now. Those pipes are all interconnected. Or my favorite, it just tastes like mildew because those no one has cleaned those machines in years. Yeah. Oh, Nicole yeah. Kim isn't drinking your fucking mildew soda. I, I, I'm going to say something controversial. I hate a freestyle machine. I really hate them. <laughs> I know. I love a gun. I love a soda gun, like bar style. Yeah. Like, give you got, me those. You got to keep it simple because this, this experimental shit where you're like, I want an orange, vanilla, Mountain Dew, Mm-mm. Fanta, Coke Zero is gross. Mm-mm. And I know for a fact that some of these flavors haven't been touched in a while. And so when you decide that you want to go down that weird road, like, that shit tastes weird as hell. It's, like, disgusting, like, sludgy orange crap. Because it's just bags of syrup. Just imagine the inside of those machines, just bags 
of syrup stacked up like the fucking Matrix at the end. Yeah. Like tubs of goo. Those things ain't right. I don't like I don't like a freestyle soda. I'd prefer a fountain soda behind a counter where people actually are required to clean it on a regular yeah. basis. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I'm a, listen, I'm saying that in the house of Coca-Cola right now in Atlanta, Georgia. Someone's I'm got, sure they're someone's on they're, your porch. I'm sure Al Pacino, whoever the Al Pacino and friends of the Coca-Cola company are standing outside my house right now surveilling me being like all right she said she didn't like the freestyle machines where's the sniper on the roof you're gonna open she, your door once she walks out of the house you better hit her you better hit those feet <laughs> make her <laughs> make her Dance, the day <laughs> you're gonna go you're gonna open your door there's gonna be like a flyer attached to your doorknob from coca-cola it's like we heard what you said about the freestyle machines 10 minutes ago <laughs> And let us tell you that you are now a marked woman. <laughs> we also know that you got Pepsi in that fridge. We let that one slide. I mean, I do have. I do. I don't even know how you find Pepsi in Atlanta. Oh, it's you real found hard. It. It's real hard. That's like, what that note's going to say. Like, you fucking made the effort to go out of town to find this soda. Yeah. <laughs> I only drink the wild cherry diet. That's all I, that's all I drink. And it is really hard to find. So, and and when I ha- if I have to go somewhere to get it, like if I have to go like outside of the city to get it, you really got to sneak it. And, and I find that people sometimes car. hide it. Sometimes people hide it because it's such a rare thing to see here that they'll like push it in the back of the shelf to be like, uh-uh, like <laughs> I'm coming back <laughs> for this. I know it's contraband, but I want it. So I'm going to hide it and come back for it. And I'm like, I gotta go climb into the bottom of the shelf and grab it. I'm telling Get you, some, it's like some it's wild dusty, here. some dusty old twelve pack. <laughs> oh, I dusted off a couple of yeah. Oh, sure, sure have, sure have. So, oh, I love you taking the risk. I love where this conversation has taken us. T, you're wonderful. I also have to take this moment to ask if you're watching this season of Righteous Gemstones because the NASCAR conversation just reminded me of the Shea Wiggum character, and he oh, yeah. is. Insane. I love him so much as an actor. I, he is fucking wild. I love, love, love him. Can we get him on this podcast? Do you think he would do a podcast? I, I think he would do a podcast if you asked him to do it in a treehouse. <laughs> I feel like, much like yourself, he's just in it for the experience. He is one of our finest dirtbag Southern character actors. Like, truly. Truly, truly, truly. And when his fucking ass showed up in the gemstones with the, that like old man Winston cigarette <laughs> smoking makeup, I screamed. I fucking screamed. <laughs> I did too. I just love him so much. Uh, and even he, he's on Perry Mason and, and he does a great job on that. Like he's, he's truly a versatile and remarkable actor in, in every yeah. sense of the word. I prefer the dirtbag Southern characters. Same. I mean, yes, sir. You you have a range that is unbelievable. <laughs> I watched the the Waco the aftermath and saw you in it and was like, yes, you're incredible. But I gotta tell you, in the in, when you walked out, simply you walking out in the gemstones was like done. Give he gets a Pulitzer and a Peabody <laughs> Emmy. Give him an egot. <laughs> He's gonna egot just for one scene. <laughs> Where there's no music. 
shit. Oh, God. Amazing. Well, I, again, thank you, T. Fantastic email. Thank you to everyone who writes to us and says kind, has kind words, but this was really a special one. So thank you so much. And now, why don't we give you some movies and get into our theme? Yes. Uh, we are on week four of hot movies. And uh, this is a good one. So we got, we, we've decided that we're, we're going to... Other words for hot also count <laughs> in this month. Anything <laughs> heat-related. Yes. Anything temperature hot related counts. I feel like we did basically a perfect job at picking heat named films this week. <laughs> we kind of did. And they're weirdly, they're very weirdly um paralleled, or at least they 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 fit together well, I think. This yes. is not one of our weirder double features. I'm gonna take a stab at maybe linking them. Oh. These are both stories. Of people trying to remove themselves from or extricate themselves from situations that they don't want to be in. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant observation. Yes. Yes. And also, I guess, the criminal justice system. <laughs> so, <laughs> but also that's also that's also from different angles. But yeah, I'm I'm psyched. I haven't seen your movie in a long time. I hadn't seen my movie in a long time. Oh my god! Um, I didn't your even movie. realize my movie's like 28 years old, 27 years old. Okay, I was shocked by that too. The I was shocked by the hair in this film. I have oh, to say, we're which was it. the indicator of time passage. I was like, what? These hairstyles are wild. Completely. Like, the male and female hairstyles both are wild. And then I was like, what year was this movie made again? I'm like, oh, 95? Five. The year I yeah. graduated high school. See? And that was a lot. Like, my whole thing about the 90s now being like, what, 30 years ago? Is scary as shit. Like, I'm just like, yeah. okay. Like, the 90s felt like the most modern era in the world to me as a kid, and now we're, like, so far removed from that era that I'm like, I can't figure out what's happening in my life. Like, it's really if jarring. The, put it this way. If Back to the Future was made today, they would be in 1993. Marty would go back to 1993. <sighs> yeah. Oh, my God. Let that it's sit a, in your stomach for a minute. <laughs> yes. Let that rock you hard. <laughs> Um, dude, I, I am so fucking excited to talk about your movie. I know you're going first this week, so... Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. My movie was released in 1995. The screenplay is by Michael Mann. It was directed by Michael Mann. And my movie is Heat. You want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Yes, this film is a rollicking two hours and 50 minutes long. I don't think they could have made it shorter if they tried. Michael Mann worked on this movie for like decades, truly. Mm. And was it was astonishing that it came out at all. So let the man have the three hours. Like, <laughs> give, him the, give him the three hours. Give him the B of the D. Give him those three hours. 
And I'm going to, I'll give you the one sentence and then we'll go into a little bit of background. We did talk about Michael Mann when Millie covered Thief, the movie Thief. So go back and listen to that episode if you want like an in-depth Michael Mann, a look at Michael Michael Mann. But my one sentence is, startling wig choices bookend this tension-fueled heist movie that refuses to ignore the private lives of cops and robbers in Los Angeles. (laughs) You fucking covered it. (laughs) It's a cops and robbers movie. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, the first thing you usually hear about Heat is the truly stunning fact that this is the first film where Al Pacino and Robert De Niro were face-to-face acting. Yes, yeah. they were in The Godfather together, but they filmed those scenes separately. They never acted together. So this is weirdly and wonderfully the first film where we have these two powerhouse actors together on screen. That was the thing that excited everyone when it came out. I remember people talking about it like crazy. But what I really love about this movie, because it's also the other thing you also hear or I've heard in my life from people is how this movie is kind of like a a, a dude buffet, right? Like it's a movie for dudes. But I, the more I watch it, the more often I see it, which is, you know, every few years I'll watch it. I really dig that this film is, yes, it's a heist film, but at its core, it's really about the private lives of each character. And each character gets a full backstory, which actually makes the heist and the the action more pointed, which kind of changed the game a bit. Like you start to see more of these characters where they're engaging in criminal behavior, but they also have a lot of life-infused in them. Um, Yes, it happened a little bit before Michael Mann, but I think you saw it a lot more afterwards. And I'm thinking even on TV, like the Walter Whites and the, like we started to kind of see this anti-heroic shift that to me happened after this film. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I I totally agree with you. Like, I definitely think that this set the table for that kind of stuff. I actually think that's a really interesting thing to point out too, because that is sort of what because I feel like this movie does feel a lot like Thief in a way. Well, just m- meaning that they're both movies about like methodical heists being planned by like professional totally. criminals, right? But I think in both movies, and I think maybe in a lot of Michael Mann's work, there's this idea of it being about the crime, about the, like, ins and outs of that whole world, but also about people who have, like, home lives and that push and pull of, well, I want to do this stuff because, (laughs) frankly, I'm good at it and I love money, but I also have this thing that's pulling at me that's saying, like, I should get out of the business, I should get a wife and spend more time with my kids and that kind of thing, which I think, yeah, I think that, that this movie perfected that notion. And I feel like that now is something that happens in pretty much all crime things, you know, TV shows and movies is that it's not just about the like, Hey, isn't it cool that we're just blowing stuff up and shooting each other in the street and like cops and robbers. It's more like, there's more kind of um, interior lives being shown, which yeah, is, like, I appreciate. Dudes? Who are these yep. guys? And I think it's the other thing that I also appreciate about this movie is if you haven't seen it in a while or you haven't ever seen it, when you're watching it again or for the first time, pay attention to the women in this film. Because again, this is the type of film that's often billed as like a dude film. But if you pay attention to the women, 
I think you realize that they fuel this film. So every decision that is made by De Niro and Pacino's characters has a tinge of humanity to it because of the women in their lives. And when they act selfishly or forget their partners, that's when shit starts to fall apart. Yeah. So I think that is incredibly important to to point out as well, that Michael Mann is... He's a really full storyteller in that way. Like he gives, there's not a character on on the screen that he's not thought about in full. Um, so even if they are not present in several scenes or a lot of scenes, they're always part of the fabric of what's fueling these characters. So I also think the the weird the weirdest thing in the world hit me this time when I was watching it, which is that Danny Trejo has really nice eyes. Yes, <laughs> I don't think enough people. In the films that he's in are doing enough close-ups, because I didn't know that. Do yeah. some Danny Trejo close-ups. He has great eyes. And get his donuts and tacos if you live in Los Angeles, because they're pretty good. His donuts and tacos are great. His tacos 100% will give me the shits every time. <laughs> I've ordered several things from that menu, and every time I get the fucking shits. But they're delicious, and they're worth it. Listen, good going down after that. It's a it's a roll of the dice, but it's worth at least, it. Pl- yeah, plan the yeah. time on the toilet, but do, but do the deed because they're good. They're really good. <laughs> yeah, that to me, this movie is so crazily packed with mm-hmm. famous people that you're like, oh yeah, Danny Trejo is in that movie. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, Michael T. Williamson is in it. Yeah. Oh you're god. Like, Wait. I mean, it, fucking. Bud Court is in this. I was like, what? I forgot fucking exactly. Bud Court's in this movie. Jeez. It is It is such a stunning cast. And I mean, again, if you look through, you'll be shocked. But it's Pacino and De Niro, Val Kilmer, John Voight, Ashley Judd, Amy Brenneman, Michael T. Williamson, Ted Levine. Uh, Natalie Portman is in this movie. <laughs> Hank Azaria, Danny, Danny Trejo, Henry Rollins. Like, it just goes on and on and on. Um, Tone Loke is in this movie. Yeah, Dennis Haysbert. Like, uh, there's so many people. It's like a little advent calendar or something. Yeah. Like you just open a door every, every day, and there's like, oh, here's another famous person popping out to give, like, 12 lines. You're like, wow. Completely. Fucking Jeremy Piven show. It's just so yeah. weird. It's weirdly packed. But it's a great, it's a great, great movie. I think that don't let it, don't shy away from this movie because of the length of time that it takes to watch it or what anyone has told you that, that they think the movie is. I think that it's it's probably deeper than it's given credit for. And just a brief summary of the film. So this movie is really about Neil McCauley who is the Robert De Niro character. Uh, and he's running this crew of criminals that includes Val, Val Kilmer, Danny Trejo, Tom, Tom Sizemore. And they're very methodical. They're very organized. Um, you know, Their first robbery that we see on screen is them hitting an armored car. And they use like an 18-wheeler, hockey masks, and an ambulance. And somehow that works. It's like they picked like a Mad Lib style. Yeah. Like, what should we use to hit this truck? And it works. And they blow the doors off with these special made bombs and it's just wild. It's wild. And then they take bearer bonds of all things. Like they leave all the cash, they take all the paper. It's very strange. But there's a new guy on the crew, this guy Wayne Grew. And he joined them that morning and everything's going well until he kills one of the guards. And he's not supposed to kill the guards. So that kind of kicks off the plot. Mm-hmm. And the first weird wig we see in this movie is Val Kilmer as Chris. Um, so Val Kilmer plays this character named Chris Shaherlis, 
And it's not like it's an awful wig. It just, it doesn't fit him. It just doesn't suit him. It's very Patrick Swayze in Point Break. Always in a ponytail. And also the ponytail's always hanging out of the back of his mask. And I'm like, that's a prime marker for the cops to find out who you are. Like, look for ponytail thieves. Listen, there is a lot of weird shoulder-length man hair in this movie that shouldn't be there. Oh, the it's next one strange. is... The next one we see is immediate, and it's John Voight. <laughs> so John Voight kind of, he's hes kind of Macaulay's arranger. Like, he works with him to plan the jobs. And he's telling Neil about this new score that he's got, and his name is Nate. And all I'm th- focusing on is, like, Nate, that hair is is wild. <laughs> that wig is wild. It makes John Voight look truly unhinged. Oh, I could and will not get over it. Like, forever. Like, I'm just like, that hair is so fucking weird. Such like, a choice. I don't, yeah. So, and I I was like, couldn't figure out if it was in like a half pony, you know? like is Or I was like, maybe ah. he's just slicked it back. I can't figure out if there's like a tiny little rubber band back there or if it's it just kind slicked. of... Yes, I think it's slick too. Which is weirdly not even 90s. That's like an 80s hairdo, which maybe, and to me, I was, again, looking at this with a closer, through a closer lens, <laughs> I was like, maybe they're trying to telegraph that this character is out of touch by this wig being so out of touch <laughs> with these like slick back 80s moosed wings going on. I it know. is wild, wild, wild. So we're fueled, we're thrown into the movie with a little bit of plot about who this gang of thieves actually is. But then we also get to meet Al Pacino as Lieutenant Vincent Hanna. The primary thing you need to know about how Al Pacino in this film is that he is fucking insane. <laughs> he started chewing up scenes in Scent of a Woman and then just never stopped. Just never stop shouting. <laughs> I so I read like after I after I watched the movie again this week, I was like, I need to read everything again. <laughs> and I read something where he said that he for this role that he imagined that his character was on cocaine the entire time. Good lord, and I was that explains like, so much. Or is that just you in is all that movies? Just <laughs> how you act now? Is that just how you act? How you are now? <laughs> I was like, oh, is that really what you were thinking when you were doing your thing that you've done in like every movie since the 70s? Is that the method you came up with? (laughs) Act like you're on cocaine? I also, for some reason, think it's really funny to call him Al Pachichi. I feel like film bros love that. (laughs) Al Pachichi's in this movie. (laughs) Screaming. Because every time he would scream, I'm like, how can I humanize this man? So in my head, I just started calling him Al Pacici. Let's get those film bros. Let's just call <laughs> let's just call him that forever now. Whenever anyone starts waxing on about for like three hours about anything, I'm be like, oh, you mean Al Pacici? <laughs> Pacic. Pacich? I've seen some Pacich movies. <laughs> Can't. What's your favorite Al Pacici movie? I share it with you. <laughs> I love that shit. <laughs> so Pachichi is fucking crazy in this movie. He screams everything. He's there's one scene where he's talking to an informant, and out of nowhere he goes, "Give me all you got." It's like this is also like the birth of the the modern day Al Pacino stereotypical 
comedy routine. It comes from shit like this, where he's just screaming. There's another scene where he's in the uh, the squad room and he goes, because she has a great ass. Like, I, I know you've seen that. That has been gift to high heaven. But he is just, that is who he is in this film. Like, he's a cop and he's methodical and organized. And he's very much a parallel for this Neil Macaulay character. But Pachich is always shouting. And... <laughs> He's also, again, very methodical, very organized. So he's starting to build a case because he's called into this armored car bombing. He's starting to build a case. And he's smart because he's building the case off of the bomb that they use to blow the doors off. So it's a very specialized bomb. And he's starting to kind of start the puzzle piece, start piecing the puzzle together there. Um, But you also learn that he's on his third marriage. He's married to um, the actress Diane Venora, who plays Justine. And it's not going great. Because he's, in typical fashion, married to the job. Um, But he does care about his wife. And he weirdly cares a lot about his stepdaughter, Lauren, who's played by Natalie Portman, who we only really see in three scenes. But one of them is really crucial to the plot, and I'm not going to ruin it. But... He's he starts to show like a, a, he starts to slip a little when he's kind of he's very stoic and putting on his his outfit and getting ready to go out and be a cop for the day, but he's really concerned that Lauren's dad hasn't picked her up yet. Like they're divorced and he's supposed to pick her up for school and he's like he's half an hour late and he's like well is he is he gonna be here like it's just strange little moments like that that again I think humanize the character and um, kind of tone down Pachichi in the movie. <laughs> Are you going to laugh every time? <laughs> I'm, I'm holding in a laugh so hard that I feel like I'm going to cry. <laughs> Don't hold it in. Let it out. <laughs> I will get through this episode. I will get through it. <laughs> That's our mantra. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. Uh, but the other thing, so this is kind of like the 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 plot of the film as it kicks off. Again, like Millie said, it's so layered. There's so much going on. But the thing that is is ever present for me in this film is how expertly man is building tension. So he builds tension in these incredible ways. So yes, he does it through camera angles and actual shots. But I also in this viewing realized he's just waiting. Like, he doesn't rush through any scenes. So he's kind of just always waiting to get the right reaction and waiting for the right moment to kind of spring into action. So one example of this is when, you know, they're done with the job and um, Macaulay is talking to Wayne Grow and they're at this diner with the other two guys. And you can tell they're all just fucking furious that he fucked up so badly, that Wayne Grow fucked up so badly. And Macaulay starts talking very calmly and then he grabs Wayne Grow's head and just slams it on the counter, <laughs> on the on the table, just slams it down like twice. And then he kind of goes back to talking in his little demeanor. And I think that, again, the tension there is so great for the viewer, but it's also a great tension for the character because you're looking at, you know, what the character thinks versus what he's able to express. So you're seeing him kind of express these little moments of anger, but he doesn't let himself live in it And he, because he can't. If he lived in that anger, they would never get be as, be as successful as they are with all of these jobs. So it's just a fascinating look at that character. And he, this is a character that also says a couple of times in the movie, it's kind of like his, his mantra, that once he, he was once told, don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel heat around the corner. 
So you can see as we kind of go back to their houses and kind of go back to seeing what their lives are like, you can see how this plays out for Macaulay specifically. So the fascinating thing to me about the inner lives of these thieves is that they all have like nice houses and families. The Chris, the Val Kilmer character, is married to Ashley Judd, um, who plays Charlene. And they have a toddler and a very nice home and a pool um, in Los Angeles, which is, you know, hard to come by. Uh, (laughs) But he's also incredibly volatile. And you learn that he has a gambling addiction. And again, if you focus on her, you realize that what this scene is telling you is that she's not willing to put up with this. She might have signed on to being with him in the lifestyle that he's chosen and the way he's chosen to make money. But she's not on board with the gambling addiction. So she's parsed that out. And she's kind of telling him that, you know, this is what's going to break us. And it sends him over the edge and he starts smashing shit in his own house. But I think that the fact that her autonomy is on full display, even though she's not heavily featured in every scene, is a really smart directorial move and a really smart move for a writer to make. Right. And then you also get to see Neil's house a little bit. Um, he meets the character Edie in a diner. Um, this is Amy Brenneman. And she's a graphic designer, but she's also a bookstore clerk, which is why she starts talking to him because she constantly sees him like in there buying books about metals. <laughs> she's like, what do you do for a living? Um, and he's like, oh, I sell metal. <laughs> that was the best he could come up with on short notice. I sell metal. But, you know, you get her backstory where she, she's her family is, is Appal- Appalachian and, and he's from the Bay Area and he wants to go to Fiji one day. And, like, you kind of get this backstory for both of them as they're chatting each other up. And then he go, they go back to his house and you realize he has no furniture. Like, this guy lives this ethos of be ready to go in 30 seconds to the fullest, to the point where he will not even be comfortable in his own home yeah. because he has to be ready to leave everything. So he is... This is also a rare thing for him to bring a woman into his life because he has detached so much from the world that he hasn't had a you know a wife, a family. He hasn't had any of the the modern cultural trappings. Yeah. So throughout the movie, we kind through Edie, we kind of get to see if his theory of detachment is going to play out now that Edie's on the scene, and you know once they bone because of course they bone. Yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, so I really thought about this this couple this time seeing this film again because there's a part of me that's like, do I really believe that this Parsons educated graphic designer from Appalachia is going to just literally run off with this guy she just met? I know. I mean, I, I know that they boned, but I'm also saying that like, they don't know each other, right? Exactly. But I did think at the same time, that <laughs> as as I've experienced maybe in my life, and may, probably many of you too, his intensity towards her is attractive, right? Yeah. But that intensity comes from his desperation to be normal. Like, he feels the push of, all right, I have no fucking furniture in this house. Like, mm-hmm. all my, all the guys in my crew have wives. They got a, uh, you know, maybe an exit strategy for life after the after the game. I don't. I need something stable. I need a, a wife. I need something. Mm-hmm. You know, and he needs a reason to get out of the game. Yeah, truly. I mean, they actually there's a scene where they, I guess they're all at dinner or something, and they 
talk about him being alone. Like there's a, like yeah. more there's references to him being by himself, like not with a wife or with kids. Exactly. And I think that's on purpose to show to make his make this whole scenario be like, well, th- this is like his ticket out. This woman. Maybe at a certain point she's like, well shit, he must really like me. <laughs> He really wants to run away with me, you know? Yeah, she's she's kind of in the fantasy version of it, which is the intensity of this relationship is based on the fact that we just click and we're so great together. And he's in the the realistic version in his own life of, I need something to hang on to. Like, I'm hanging on for dear life. And I think that scene where they talk about him not being partnered or not having family is really interesting when you look back at the scene where he confronts Charlene because he kind of goes and and finds out that both Charlene and Chris have been cheating on each other. But he chooses to confront her and kind of flat out says, give him a chance to make this work. He needs he needs one more chance because Chris has already told him like I, she the, the sun rises and sets for, mm. uh, for with her like yeah. she's my whole life. So once he knows that he's like, oh, you got to make this work. Like, don't give up on this guy. So there's a weird pull in him where he wants, he he kind of appreciates love and he appreciates relationships and he appreciates the relationships in his life of the people that are in his life, but he's just not able to access that himself until Edie comes around. So right, I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Again, something that in a, another movie would not even be touched or addressed. Yeah. And, um, and he's probably thinking too, I mean, shit. Uh, some these families are like guiding principles for these guys sometimes, and like totally, he's not going to be able to do his job well if he doesn't have the thing at the end of the day that he can come home to. Yeah, so Absolutely. give him another shot. You and know, if there's three things we know about Chris is that wig, he can make a great fake ID, and he loves <laughs> his family. So don't yeah. take any of that away from him. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So as the movie goes on, Neil kind of gets the skinny on this new score. And when the John Voight character, Nate, is explaining it to him, there's like so much math. And he's like, oh, you got to cut three alarms. and But it's worth $12.2 million. And I have to admit, like in most heist movies, this is where I start to tune out, where they start describing the plan. I'm like, Jesus yeah. Christ. So like, you do the math and you cut this and you do that. And I'm like, oh, God. can we just just tell me you got to rob this bank for $12 million? That I'm there. But they, it's very convoluted. Um, and there's a dot matrix printout involved and like just all kinds of shit. So Nate calls the guy that they just robbed of these bearer bonds, Van Zant, right? And Van Zant is played by William Fichtner, uh, who you will absolutely recognize when you see him. He was born to play the prick. He just has that. Fa- I'm sure he's a lovely and beautiful man. He was born to play a prick. He has that face. Everything about his attitude, every time we've seen him in a film, he's been this guy. He kind of, he's like, imagine Steve Nash from the from the Suns, the basketball player from the Suns, as like an evil corporate prick. What a reference. <laughs> <laughs> that's, who, that's who this actor is for me. Oh, God. <laughs> so... Evil Steve Nash is like, <laughs> look, I'm not I, okay. Okay, fine. You're gonna try to sell my own bearer bonds back to me at a discount rate. Okay, gotcha. Because I guess again, in the math of it, he his insurance will cover 100, percent and then he also gets the bonds back. So they're trying to make it like a good thing for him. Yeah. But he turns to Henry Rollins, his number two guy, 
and is like, actually, I'm just going to kill these fucking guys because they stole from me. And I don't want anyone getting the message that they can steal from me. So Van Zandt's plan is to kill all of Macaulay's crew and set it up so that there's a drop with these bearer bonds. And then he's going to kill everybody. That goes horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. Horribly wrong. In a scene which can only be described as Robert De Niro is wrecking shop in an old 1980s station wagon. <laughs> He's in the station wagon from National Lampoon's vacation, just killing dudes left and right. <laughs> so what's also happening at the same time is possibly one of my favorite details of this film. So we're, we come into this restaurant that Bud Court is running, Harold from Harold and Maude, for those of you who don't know. And he's running this restaurant, and Dennis Haysbert comes in for a job. And we learn that he's on parole, and his girlfriend has dropped him off, his wife, well, I'll just say his partner. His partner has dropped him off, Lillian, and is like kind of pumping him up, and he goes in, and he's on parole, and Bud Court is so dismissive, right? He's just like, yep, here's the deal. I hire guys like you all the time. Do you want the job or not? And this character is where the movie really starts to sing for me. Because in any other film, you would not even know this guy's name. And this is, again, this is Dennis Haysbert playing a character named Donald Breeden. You wouldn't even know his name. And eventually he does reconnect with Neil and becomes the driver in this major heist. But in this film, you get a full scope of his emotional life, starting with how frustrated he is that his new boss won't even look at him, let alone acknowledge his humanity, and how disappointed he is in himself and how low he is about where he is in life. And there's a scene later in the film with Lillian that cinches it, where she meets him at a bar, and they're talking. And she tells him that she's proud of him. And he gets very teary-eyed, and he asks, asks her why. Like, why would you be proud of me? And again, this is a scene that would never make it in another film of this caliber or of this subject matter. But seeing how he feels about himself, seeing how the people in his life feel about him, seeing a character who's been imprisoned, who gets out of jail and isn't vilified by everyone he knows. I mean, these are things that make this movie very different for me. That, you know, you can pay attention to these small parts that give you such a more more beautiful look at the larger picture. So that's, again, to me, beautiful. So we've got all this stuff going on. Al Pacino is in a club where House of Pain is playing, and that's where he talks to Tone Loke. And he gets kind of turned on to this gang because the only interesting bit of information that Tone Loke gives him is that one of the guys in the group calls people slick, which is a detail he has heard before. So that puts him onto Tom Sizemore. So now Tom Sizemore's character is being trailed, which means the whole crew is being tailed. And there's this really cool parallel scene, that scene that, Millie, you were talking about where they're all out at dinner. So you see Pacino's kind of out with his crew. De Niro's kind of out with his crew. And that's where, I, you know, you start to realize, for me anyway, as a viewer, like, oh, there's a lot of parallels between these two characters. They're just living in different worlds. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, Wango, that first dude who fucked up and shot the guard— is revealed to be a serial killer because he kills a sex worker and then casually goes to a bar to look for work. And the reason you know he's a serial killer is when they find her, one of the police officers says to the detective, Lieutenant Hannah, the Al Pacino character, oh, it's just like the other ones. So he has been doing this consistently. He's an absolute serial killer. But even he gets the benefit of 
the Michael Mann lens and a kind of look at who is this guy at his core, mm-hmm. right? So what's interesting to me also about this scene is there's a point where the mother of the murdered girl is kind of waiting behind the police tape and she dips under and starts running towards the body and Al Pacino's character catches her and just hugs her. And it's a weirdly compassionate moment because he's just holding this mom after her daughter's been killed. But he's like, he's in charge and he's this kind of big dude and he lives for the case and he lives in the moment, but he also can step out. He can step out of it. He has the ability to step out of it enough to realize when he should be a human being. Mm -hmm. So it's just, again, small but interesting scene for me. And, you know, we kind of move through the film and, and during the heist, Robert De Niro hears someone in the van because Pacino's men are all watching them. And he hears someone like knock something over in their van. So he knows they're being followed and they just cut right then and there. But then what happens is this really interesting development of like this cat and mouse game. So in the next scene, you, you know, he kind of sets it up so that they can watch the cops and reveal who's really working on the case. And right. Lieutenant Hannah catches on to it because everyone's like, what were they looking at in this parking lot? And he finally says, you know what they see? Us. We we just got made. Um, such a powerful scene. Such a powerful scene. And then there, I but mean, then it's like, a, it's such a fucking gotcha moment where I'm just like, oh, man. Like, the these guys are real smart. <laughs> oh, the slow realization of it is the best part. So then, yeah. you know, we've got the crew of of criminals. They have a choice to make. Should they take the bank or should they just leave and, and disband right now? And everyone right. kind of says, like, fuck it. Let's take the bank. So we're again, we're going to continue this cat and mouse theme throughout the film. There are a couple of more incredibly iconic scenes. Um, the first one being the diner scene between um, Lieutenant Hannah and Neil McCauley. Because, again, not, not only do we have Pacino and De Niro acting together face to face, but the way that the scene rolls out is just Hannah's kind of like, let's just have a cup of coffee and talk. We're just two professionals talking. And... Even in this scene where you've got these two guys who are completely at odds, one is hunting the other. Um, he, ha- he doesn't have enough to arrest him yet, but he knows he's doing some fuck shit. And you've got this guy who knows he's being watched and is trying to pull off a job under the eyes of, you know, heavy surveillance by the police. But the thing they talk about is their lives and their hearts and their <laughs> their families and the people in their life and their emotions. So... I know everyone looks at this scene or a lot of most people look at this scene as something that's just cements the brilliance of these two actors, which I agree with. It's it's wonderful to watch them together. And it, you know, Pachichi finally calms down when he's across from De Niro because, you know, De Niro wouldn't take that shit. She's got a great ass. He'd be like, Al, can you bring it down a notch? Pachich, can you bring it down a notch? Pachich. Bring it down. So they're just having this lovely, calm conversation. And again, it's great to see these two actors at work, but I'm loving the subject matter. I love seeing a little peek at these men who are firmly middle-aged and very tired and very kind of at the end of their emotional rope because of their jobs, talking about it. Yeah, and also, too, that there's, like, rules to this shit. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's yeah. kind of, like, what I find is really fascinating, which is, like, okay, think about this, like, 90s LAPD story, right? The idea that on both sides, 
there are rules Mm -hmm. to this game, which is that, you know, for criminals that, you know, there are certain things you don't do. And for the police, there's certain, like, they can't, in another, in another world, Pacino would be like this corrupt cop that would just try to take these guys out immediately mm-hmm. and wouldn't care about protocol, right? Especially given the history of the LAPD, if you know what I mean. But I'm mm-hmm. just saying that in this movie, he understands that there's like a set, like there are just rules and there's um, a protocol and, and it, that there is like game recognizes game type of stuff going on. Totally. Which is very entertaining for me. Absolutely. And they're able you know? to see the parallels in their own lives. Yeah. Which is how they're able to sit down and have that conversation right. of, you know, game-recognized game, for sure. Yeah. It is. It's and a very interesting scene. I love it. Yeah. I, I Yeah, because it's like, you know, like he should have just taken the guy out when he first had the chance, but he's actually sitting there with him, you know? And yeah. it's wild. It's and wild. He's, but, and I love, he's a cop, but I love it. He's a cop with a conscience where he, he actively stops them from arresting Macaulay at one point because like he, he just walked out of a building. He doesn't have anything. We can't arrest him. He doesn't. He's not holding anything. Right. So to see a cop with a conscience even is like yeah. wild. Like there's a weird respect level that they have for each other. Yeah, and um, it's like a very it's like a chess game. You know, it's not you can't just like put totally. it all out there. So and the next scene that I really think a lot of people focus on and necessarily so is there is an absolutely epic shootout. That happens towards the end of the film. It is epic. It is long. Tom Sizemore grabs a child at one point to use as like a hostage. It is, it's wild. It's just wild. And most movies would end at that shootout. But not this yeah. one. There's another 30, 40 minutes to go after that shootout. And you might be thinking like, what could they possibly be discussing in the next 40 minutes? I know. I Like this shit goes on forever. It's re- it's remarkable. It goes on for such a long time. I was like sitting there this time watching it going, I bet you some film bro nerd knows the exact number of shots <laughs> fired in this entire ah! scene. Like somebody somebody sat there on like, you know, slow-mo and counted all of the shots and there's like, it's hanging out on Reddit or something. Absolutely. Some dark corner of the internet that will never <laughs> reach. <laughs> Or oh, did will. you know that they shot, you know, fifty-seven hundred and four bullets in this uh, sequence? And then Bachich comes around the corner with a cute little haircut <laughs> and wild eyes. <laughs> That's my new, my new counter to any time anyone says anything just wildly, specifically nerdy. You're like, oh, yeah. Denise, Denise, Deninis. And Pachich. <laughs> I think I said 5,704. I probably need to say 5,704 times. <laughs> no, it would be 5,704. <laughs> That's how they'd say it. I sound like Usher right now. 5,704. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but it's a, it is such an incredibly long shootout, and it's a great shootout. It's, like, it's just the action of the film is spot on every time. But again, you think it would end with this scene and in another movie it would but we get a movie that carries us back to the inner lives and the private experiences of these players which ultimately brings the movie to a couple of different shocking points before the ending so i'm not going to ruin any of that for you but i think that this is it's a movie you've heard about a lot because it is truly 
astounding in scope. But it's also a movie that the more that I watch it, the more that I'm able to tap into the the depth of the characters and the depth of the story. So it's fantastic. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Everyone should see it and fits into our hot month perfectly. And I also want to say thank you for picking this movie, number one, because I agree. It's so entertaining. It doesn't feel like... If you think about a three-hour movie, you're like, oh, my God. It, I don't feel that three hours nope. pretty much ever. But also, thank you for pointing out that this has this, like, reputation for being a dude movie because I I now want a podcast where just women talk about heat from 1995. Like, absolutely. I am so fascinated by the concept of that, of 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 seeing a movie like this through the eyes of people other than who is stereotypically into it. Absolutely. Because as we've just proven, <laughs> I want to talk about heat all day and night. Yeah. There's no rules. The rules of our game is that there's no rules. If I were sitting in a diner across from a bunch of other dude podcast movie podcasters, I would slam their heads on the table. There's no <laughs> rules. No civilization needs to take place here. We could do whatever oh, yeah. the fuck we want. And I think I've been largely influenced. It's been a weird week, but like I did finally see the Barbie movie. And so there's parts of it that I, I don't want to get into it right now, but there's there's things to love about it. And um, I've just been really on one since I saw it. Listen, we're going to have to take this offline because I can literally <laughs> talk about the Barbie movie all day and night. I, I talked well. about it in therapy. That's how much oh, yeah. I talk about this movie. I was talking about it in therapy this week. Oh, yeah. I, I totally. I I was talking about it so much the day after I saw it with people that are in my life that I felt like I was alienating everyone. <laughs> because a lot of people I know hadn't seen it yet. And I was just like... I can't wait to, you know, like, tell you about this, 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 this. And they were just like, why am I friends with you? I hate, I hate this. <laughs> well, I'll talk about it all day. I don't need to okay, spend my good. therapy dollars on it. Maybe and... we'll do a bonus about it or something. It Ooh. just... Uh, it Maybe. Here, here are my thoughts first, and then we can decide if we're going to do a bonus about it. Okay. <laughs> here are my thoughts, too. I don't know. We're we're dangling oh, that out there. We're right now um, we're in the middle of a, of a full episode, so let's finish it. We got your yeah, movie. We do. Um, so continuing on the heat train, my movie is one from 1974. It was written and directed by Jonathan Demi, and it's called Caged Heat. You're in a house of desperate women here, and a long, long way from home. So, as everyone probably knows by this point. Feel, it feels like Jonathan Debbie has some kind of godlike status on this podcast, I would say. We've done his movies before. We did the DVD commentary track for Married to the Mob. So we've definitely dipped our toes into the Demiverse. But I just, I just want to say, every time I think about him or we talk about him, it just reminds me of just how much I adore him. Yeah. Like, He's pretty crucial. <laughs> I I agree. I love his background. I love his style and his taste. It's just like, I love that 
while you can't really set your watch to his filmography in a way, in that he just did a lot of different types of movies, he always made them human, and he always gave them his own flavor, his own stamp, right? Totally. And I started thinking about this because, you know, as a as a film person, right, there are directors that you love, and there are, for me, you know, there's directors that I love because they have this maybe unique visual style or this, like, really special way of storytelling that's really compelling and interesting. Yeah. And sometimes it's both, right? Oh, yeah, like Wong Kar Wai or Celine Siama and, like, all, yeah, like, just yeah. tons of people who have a distinctiveness to them. Right. But at the same time, some of those folks can also feel kind of far away in terms of their references are really distant from my experiences. And I find that fascinating. I really, really appreciate that, right? But then there's directors who just seem like cool people, like you would be friends with them. And it's like their entire world of their movies and all the references that they make are, they feel like inside jokes or something for you. And that's how I feel about Jonathan Demme. It's how I feel also about... John Hughes, but I and I feel that about Jonathan Demi. It's just this like feeling of, oh, I'd be friends with this person if we existed in the same timeline type of thing, right? Right. So, having said that, a little bit of background. Caged Heat was Demi's directorial debut, and he was working for Roger Corman, who I've talked about before on some episodes. He was essentially the biggest and most famous maker of low-budget films in Hollywood for decades, still alive as of this recording. So Corman started out making films for American International Pictures, AIP. They were an independent production company that made a lot of the drive-in films in the 50s through, like, the 1970s, right? And then in the early 70s, Roger Corman started his own company called New World Pictures, which was essentially keeping the tradition of making these like low budget B exploitation films going. And the way that he did this is that he most famously hired a bunch of these sort of new young directors on the scene who just like wanted to take a shot at make making a movie. And even prior to him creating New World, there was a lot of these people kind of cycling through the Corman universe, right? People like Jack Nicholson, Peter Bogdanovich, Monty Hellman, Jack Hill, Stephanie Rothman, Robert Town, the writer, and so on, right? But then when New World came along, Roger Corman's like, I need people to make movies for me. So he was giving careers to people like... James Cameron, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Curtis Hansen, Paul Bartel, Joe Dante, John Sayles, everybody, right? So Jonathan Demme was really early in his own career, and he had done some film and music writing, you know, because he likes movies, he likes music, and he was, you know, writing movie reviews for his, like, university paper and stuff. And he had recently taken a job doing film press and publicity for this movie production company. And that's how he actually met Roger Corman, was doing some publicity for one of Corman's films in 
Ireland, I think. And from everything that I've read about Roger Corman, it seems like even if you had the slightest bit of interest or experience in movie making, he would just offer you some money to make a movie and you were just off and running. There wasn't really kind of (laughs) no huge vetting process there. (laughs) So essentially Demi was like, I'm going to take a stab at writing some movies for Roger Corman. He did a few exploitation movies in the early days of new world. So he was doing, he did like angels as hard as they come, the hot box, black mama, white mama, which I've always wanted to get on this podcast. Maybe we'll do that. But then he eventually directed his own, which was Caged Heat. So he wrote and directed, that was the first one that he directed. So I'll do a one-sentence synopsis of Caged Heat. A group of women living inside of a prison plan a daring escape after discovering they're being drugged and experimented on by the sadistic medical staff and jail superintendent. Mm -hmm. So that's the setup. Now, I'll say up top, this is definitely someone's first movie. (laughs) Okay, it's a, <laughs> it's a little rough around the edges. And it definitely has some kind of Roger Corman checklist things about it. The most obvious being that it is a women in prison movie. Which, I don't expect all of you to be well-versed in the women in prison subgenre, but it's it was a very popular subgenre in this era, in the 70s. Even though, I will say, there's actually a long tradition of women in prison movies, and even in the early days of Hollywood. So they were making women's jail films for a while before Caged Heat. And Jonathan Demme (laughs) sort of famously said about working for Roger Corman, he said that Roger kind of taught him two things about making a movie. Number one, give the people someone to root for, and number two, give the people something to look at. And I think we know what we're looking at here with Caged Heat. Right? Oh, God. I think it's titties. I think it's T and A and B, which stands for beef, I guess. Uh, <laughs> T, T and A and beef. Um, oh, God. But I will say, from my experience, I have seen a lot of women in prison movies in my time, and they can be really fucking sleazy. Yeah. Right. Like I've seen ones that are shot in the Philippines that are literally just two hours of naked women with giant boobs being degraded by male guards. Like they could be really sleazy. So I feel like Caged Heat has a lot more to say than that, I think. Which is refreshing considering that, you know, it's an exploitation movie that's being made for Roger Corman. Right? Right. And then you start thinking about Jonathan Demme's subsequent career, and you know that he made a lot of movies that centered strong women and female experiences. So it's this thing where I'm like, yes, there are boobs and shower scenes and things like that in Cage Heat, but it also doesn't feel very over the top in the ways that I've seen in this genre. And also, there's a lot of things in Caged Heat that make it sort of more of an elevated message than some of these films. Yeah. Which we'll talk about for sure. Yeah, the women kind of take power pretty early on and or you know and they kind of display their own power pretty early on, which is something that you don't often see in see in these like kind of prison exploitation films. 
Yeah, and there's also kind of like, there's a couple of really interesting moments in the film that are sort of what I think are Jonathan Demi trying to sneak in messages about feminism into a exploitation movie, which I think is actually kind of awesome. But just a like kind of quick setup, right? So you the movie begins with this woman named Jacqueline, and she's being sent to jail after a botched robbery attempt. She's working with these two guys. They get caught robbing a place. Jacqueline is played by the actress Erica Gavin, who is best known for her movies with Russ Meyer, including the fucking barn burner beyond the Valley of the Dolls. We will try to sneak this on the podcast at some point. Cause it is beats per minute. The wildest movie I think I've ever seen. <laughs> um, but she, but she's in, she was actually in two, I think two Russ Meyer movies, maybe three, but so Jacqueline Gets to jail. She quickly meets the other residents who include these women named Belle and Pandora, who are played by Roberta Collins and Ella Reed. They're the kind of first people in the jail that are nice to her and engaging with her. But soon after, she is introduced to Maggie, who is the toughest lady in the block. And she's played by Juanita Brown, who was in a lot of great Black action movies in the 1970s. And so it kind of sets up that this jail is rough. I mean, everyone's just trying to survive. Adding to this is this fact that eventually gets rolled out, which is that they're also essentially test subjects for this kind of experimental mental health rehabilitation program that's being led by the superintendent of the prison, who was this stern woman in a wheelchair and glasses. Her name is McQueen, and she is played by the horror movie legend herself, Barbara Steele. I think we all have seen a gothic horror movie from England in the <laughs> 70s. That's Barbara Steele. Like, if you, you've seen her in a lot of things. She's in, been in Mario Bava movies. I mean, she's an icon of horror, right? So this is the setup, right? So you've got McQueen kind of leading the charge in this prison. And this is where I think Jonathan Demi comes out, is that in the first kind of notion of who McQueen is, you're like, oh, here's a, here's a woman who is the head of a prison, which, you know, I think kind of bucks against the trend of these women in prison movies, which is that most of the time these jails are entirely staffed by men, right? right? So there's a woman in charge. There's also this really interesting dream sequence section. There's a lot of... This movie is actually really interesting because there's a lot of this kind of... There's a lot of moments of, like, slapstick, almost, humor. Alongside these kind of dreamy sequences that some of the characters have. And I think it's an interesting technique to kind of pepper this stuff in with this, like, essentially jail film, right? Yeah, so it's like a little bit of levity that is very well-timed and often yeah. needed. Yeah. Like the woman who's crawling through the vents kind of always comes in a well-timed place where she's counting and crawling and trying to time it out. and yeah. But it's always right when some tension needs to be broken. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And so there's, there's a part 
towards the beginning of the film where there's this maybe a talent show in the jail and McQueen comes in and she's kind of watching it and she's disapproving, of course, but then it cuts to a scene later where McQueen is like taking a nap or something in her office and she has a dream where she's on stage at this talent show or whatever and she makes the speech to the women in the jail and she basically points out to them that they're in the jail because of men mm-hmm. and that they need to wake up to that reality, basically. Yep. It's kind of a, an amazing moment in a way because you're, you're like, oh, right. So here are these women who are now incarcerated because they were either accessories to male crimes or they were fighting each other for the attention of men or they were fighting because of something a man was doing to them or to someone they right. loved. Right. So it's this, I mean, to me, I'm going, why is this in a women in prison movie? It's kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great point. And it's, you know, considering it came out in 1974, it's like, you know, the second wave feminism was in full display. And yeah, it was really a very pointed message that I think, again, none of these other movies express and that's i agree with you that that's all demi yeah yeah because as the film goes on just like you said you realize that is the situation like there's a character who talks about how she's in the jail because she killed a man for raping her friend basically Mm -hmm. and i mean as much as we don't want to give a ton of credit to straight guys all the time on this podcast, I just have to say, I think that's a, a, a Jonathan Demi thing, and I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Right? So, maybe to that point, the only man in the management staff of this jail is this doctor named Randolph. And he is not only drugging these women... And forcing them to have electroshock therapy. But he's actually assaulting and molesting them and stripping them naked, taking pictures of them. He's a evil piece of shit, right? So this is all happening. And eventually all the women are just like, that's it. Like Jacqueline and Maggie specifically, they make a daring escape from the prison. They they end up meeting up with Maggie's friend on the outside, a woman simply named Crazy. Crazy <laughs> She's Alice. called Crazy. <laughs> and what I think is really interesting is that they just make the decision to go back and get everybody else in the jail. So even though they're sprung, they still feel like they need to go get everybody else because that's how horrible this place is. Which I think is actually great too. And again, probably a demi stamp i would say right so i don't know i to me i could go on and on and on about how i feel like this is a movie that is really like kind of above and beyond this other stuff that happens in this genre i mean like i said it it is a first movie for him it's rough around the edges there's some really interesting editing choices i will say that i think it's awesome that john kale from the velvet underground does the music yes for this movie. I didn't know that till I watched it this time. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's also a Demi thing. I think he, obviously, music is a huge part of his life, and it would be for a lot of his subsequent films. There's also, like, really great old ladies in this movie. 
<laughs> I uh, there's this part where um <laughs> Maggie and Crazy and Jacqueline are like holding up a, a jail vehicle that's out, I guess, transporting things. And <laughs> there's this woman named Bernice in the film that is amazing. And they have this hilarious interaction. But the one thing that I will say, there are really funny moments of the film. Like, as much as there are, like, kind of weird asides, dream sequences, this kind of stuff, my favorite is, it happens in sort of the final shootout of the film towards the end, where one of the guards gets shot by one of the women, and he gets shot in the ass, and he farts a couple times as he's going down. I fucking love Demi for that. Like, I'm like... (laughs) I had to rewind it like five times. Because I was like, are there really fart noises coming from this guy who got shot in the ass? Yes. Oh, God. Those did not get edited out. They might have gotten edited in. Whatever is happening. I love it. That that youthful, youthful fart humor. Listen, I was like, commentary on women's liberation and fart jokes Get you a man who can do both. <laughs> For real. <laughs> I don't know. I so th- I I all around, I will say, caged heat for me, a real unexpected exploitation movie. It has some thought put into it. Jonathan Demi is my king. And what else can I say? And it's I I love it. I think it's such an interesting first film too, because of the history of him working with with Roger Corman, of course, but also that within that he's kind of restricted within that genre to do something like this. I don't think you know he could not have done Silence of the Lambs with Roger Corman, <laughs> you know. So he was right. kind of influenced by and restricted by this genre filmmaker that he's working with, but he did something so wonderful with it. And I think that's where you start to see the growth and how he's starting to become who he eventually became as a director. Yeah. And there, there, from what I've read, Roger Corman was not opposed to putting messages in these films. But Roger was like, yeah, but you're going to put boobs in it too. (laughs) So it's like that thing where you're like, okay, well... Here's your platform. The only thing I say is to keep it under budget and put some boobies in it. But then if you want to make a polemic about <laughs> marketplace feminism, then go ahead. <laughs> Roger Corman is like the guy in the city standing on the street just going, show me them titties. That's like his producer input. <laughs> and the funniest part about it, too, is I've actually met Roger Corman a few times, I think now uh with my prior job and he is such a gentle grandpa like every like the two times that i met him he felt like he's like a white-haired bespeckled gentle grandpa type and i'm like that's really sweet but just just never forget grandpas be horny too oh i know oh i know (laughs) i was like this grandpa (laughs) is hot to trot these pressed slacks do not fool me sir not but a, and it's always that thing where you're like, okay, this guy's a real hornball. Not not everyone can be out like, here like Mark Rebier singing about fucking. <laughs> Some of them got to tone it down a little bit and be like, show me the titties from the street corner. So their great grandkids can still go to college. 
<laughs> oh boy. I love doing this podcast with you. Me I always say it, I but I really it. mean it. I love it. So fun. This was so fun. I'm absolutely thrilled that we got to cover both of these films. You did a great job. Yeah, me too. Me too. Good, A good week of hot movies. And I think we've got one more next week. But before we reveal the films, I want to remind everybody, if you'd like to email us, we're at asawitchdidpod at gmail.com. Like we said in the intro, we love emails from y'all. Keep them on the short side. If you don't want them to be read, say it in the email and give some pronouns. We would just appreciate it. We we love reading things. So, And you can also find us on our social media at Isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. Or now X. It's X now. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that just made me... Gr- I just groaned. That was a real groan. <laughs> oh, God. X. Like a, like a Vin Diesel movie. X. Jeez Louise. Okay, we're on X. <laughs> <laughs> we also have merch. I will say, I feel like we might be coming out with some new stuff soon. Oh, yeah. If, if but, we haven't already, um, who knows? If we haven't already, who knows? But um, you can find it at the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop. And our bonus episodes have, we have a new bonus episode every third Thursday of the month. And our old bonus episodes are just populating your feed constantly. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, Danielle, next week's right. movie, just the titles make me laugh. You, you got to tell them the titles for next week. The movies for next week are... Hard boiled from 1993 and half baked from 1998. <laughs> it's a hot month and we're going out with a bang. <laughs> oh, God, we are so stupid. Um, oh, God, oh. I love it. Listen, on that note, Danielle, always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. It's just a blast. The greatest. See you soon. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien, mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod, and you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.